My name is uh, Dr. David Vardaman, and it's my joy to introduce you today to the Leo G. Cox Deeper Life or Holiness series. Happens every year. Dr. Cox was a pastor, an educator, a scholar, an author, and he was deeply passionate about the belief that uh, Jesus died on the cross, not so that he could forgive us uh, over and over again for the same sins, but that he died on the cross to give us freedom from sin, to help us conquer sin, and to live a whole new life. Today uh, and on Wednesday, Dr. Jonathan Morgan will be speaking to us on this theme, be speaking during chapel. He'll also be speaking tomorrow at 11 o'clock in the youth lab at uh, Noggle Christian Ministry Center, and you're invited to join us tomorrow, 11 o'clock in the youth lab. Dr. Morgan is a professor of theology in the School of Theology. He is married to Christy, they have two young children, and he is a graduate of Marquette University from which he holds a PhD in theology. Would you join me in welcoming Dr. Morgan to the stage as he speaks to us today. Some of you need to uh, tamp down your expectations. Uh, thank you, Dr. Vardaman. I feel like he should be preaching. He has a nice suit on. He has a deep, kind of a elegant voice. And then I come up here and kind of have a worse image. But it's not about me. I was thinking, I haven't, I've only been here about, for about two years, and I haven't preached since I've lived here. This is my first time preaching uh, then in about two and a half years. Um, so I have a lot of things pent up within me to say. I'm also very rusty. I haven't done this for a while. And as a theology professor, I have to say that I remember in college, some of the uh, chapel sermons that I had to sit through that were the most, let's say, dull were from theology professors. So, uh, everybody just get ready. Okay. You're in for a real treat. No. I'm humbled and I'm honored uh, to stand here today to be talking about something so precious to not just the Wesleyan tradition, the doctrine of holiness, the idea that God can so transform us so that, like Dr. Vardaman said, we don't go back to the Lord every day with the same sins, the same addictions, the same baggage over and over and over again, but by the grace of God, we can be healed. That by the power of God's Holy Spirit, we can be transformed down to the very core of our being and be made new like Christ. That doesn't mean that we're immune from sin. That doesn't mean that we'll never mess up and do everything perfect all the time. But it does mean that we live from a new center. But this isn't just something that's part of the Wesleyan tradition. This is part of the entire Christian tradition. If we know nothing about Scripture except these two things, it would be pretty good. God is holy. And God calls us to be like himself. God is holy, and we are supposed to be holy. Those are the themes that I want to talk to, uh, talk to you about today, um, tomorrow, for anybody who shows up, and Wednesday, of course, too. Are you getting double credit for this, by the way, like you did last week? I right, just, just checking. All right. I see where our priorities are. All right. I'm just kidding. So... <clears throat> We will be, no, don't, no, that's enough, don't laugh, okay, we don't want to take things too far. I'll, I'll be talking from Hebrews today and on Wednesday. Right now, if you have your Bibles or if you must, your phones, then I want you to put your phones away after the passage is read, okay, don't sit there dinking around on it. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4 is what we'll be talking about today. 
Hebrews is a great text for holiness. The entire letter um, is filled with jewels for holiness. You know, not several years ago, a lot of years ago, when I was like 12 years old at a camp meeting, we had a speaker come up and say, one of you, I mean, all of you, at some point in your lives should read the letter to the Hebrews in one setting. And I sat there thinking, yeah, I should do that sometime. And I didn't until like 28 years later, I decided to, and God spoke to me and said, this is what I want you to share with the Iwu community. So today we'll be talking about Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The writer says this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Today I just want to make two points. Two points from this text that will carry over, I think, to the next time we are together. And that is this, Jesus Christ fully reveals God, and Jesus Christ fully redeems us. Jesus Christ fully, redeems, fully reveals God, and he fully redeems us. One of the things that we see here when we talk about how Jesus Christ fully reveals God, one of the things that sticks out to me in this passage, the very beginning, is that God is a God who's outgoing. You probably didn't learn that in Theology 101 when you're talking about the attributes of God. God's outgoing. But he is outgoing. Maybe not in the exact same sense that you and I might be, but God is a God whose very nature is to share himself. God is not a hoarder. God is not a miser. He doesn't keep what is good only to himself. It is in God's nature to be outflowing. He shares his life. He shares his love. That's that's why we exist. God created us at some point in time, not because he was lonely and needed lots of friends. God doesn't need anybody else. He's totally good in and of himself. You and I, honestly, don't add anything to God's personality. We We don't enhance God somehow just because we love him. But God desires to share his life, share his love with us just because he wants to. That's who he is. Communication also infers interest. Um, If somebody's communicating with you and going through the trouble of wanting to connect with you, it means you matter to them. I remember being annoyed when I first met the woman who would soon be my wife, would barely give me the time of day. Uh, I was interested in communicating with her, but she was not interested in communicating with me so much. It's not that she just, not that I was totally dead to her. I just kind of didn't matter that much to her. Like when I would enter the room and she was there, I'd, you know, try to wiggle my way in and try to talk to her, and the look on her face was just sort of deadpan, like, if you were dead right now, I'm not sure I would care, you know? But that's an exaggeration. She'll tell you the first time we met, I kept tapping her on the back of the leg with a wiffle ball bat. There's a different, there's another version of that story, but I won't, I won't tell you that right now. Try to, trying to get her attention, anyway. Eventually, though, I wore her down, and then after a while, she actually started to want to talk to me. Can you believe that? She would enter the room, and I'd enter the room, and she'd look interested, and, and I, I knew, here we go. Now we've got something. Now she, will, she, she wants to communicate with me. She wants to talk. 
Thankfully, we don't have to wear God down, you know? We don't have to approach God saying, please be nice to me, please talk to me. I want to get your attention, God. No, God approaches us when we're not even looking for it. God speaks to us and approaches us when we don't even want him to. We matter to God. You matter to God. And God is an effective communicator as well. He spoke much through the prophets, but he says now. Now he's spoken to us through his son. Why is that important? Because as many times as God had spoken in the past, and there were a lot of great revelations through Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and the other prophets, Moses, great true things, when Jesus comes, God delivers his full message, not through another person, like a prophet, but through himself, in person. Whenever we see Jesus talk, that's God talking. When we see Jesus act, God is acting. Whatever Jesus is doing, that's what God is doing. So whatever Jesus says, whatever Jesus, the Son of God, reveals about God, we can take that to the bank and say that's true about who God is. So as I said before, what what does Jesus actually reveal? Verse 3, which is where I kind of want to camp out for a little bit, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. One of the things that the Son of God reveals about God is that he is holy. Now, if you were like me, if you think of holiness, you probably have more of a Sunday school answer, like, like I did for a long time. For God to be holy means that God's uh, really nice. For God to be holy, it means that he's morally good, uh, doesn't do bad things, he's not grouchy most of the time, that he's, he's just a pretty nice, a pretty nice God. Actually, what holiness fundamentally refers to is God's radical otherness. God is not like us. God isn't like anything. Even the language we use for God falls far short of what God actually is. God is not like us in character. Okay? He's not fickle like we are. He's not stubborn like we are. He's, he's not two-faced and bitter like we get two-faced and bitter. God doesn't have a temper like we can, okay? God isn't like us, and I'm glad. Can you imagine if God were like a bigger version of us? How afraid would we be? He's not like us in character, but he's not like us in being at all. God is on a completely different level. He's not on our level. And you guys, one of the things I want to impress upon us today is that one of my fears for us I think for American Christianity in general, particularly evangelical Christianity, is that we've lost our sense of the loftiness and majesty of God. We've brought God down to a level where we can be kind of casual with him and flippant with him, and we've lost that startling sense of awe and sometimes discomfort at the loftiness and the beauty and the grandeur of his holiness. For the sun to be the radiance of God's, of God's glory. It's that, that, that word, that effulgence, that brilliance, that luminosity. He's not like us. Listen to some of the ways in which the different uh, biblical writers talk about whenever somebody actually gets a God sighting. Okay? I'm just going to read you three. Isaiah 6, 1 through 6 is one that we've probably heard before. Listen to what Isaiah says. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And listen to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 1. Then there came a voice from above the vault over the heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell face down. And then my favorite, Revelation chapter 1, 12 through 17, written by John, who had been with Jesus for three years, close enough to Jesus to have leaned against Jesus' chest at uh, at, at the Last Supper. When he sees Jesus in all his glory, he wasn't prepared. I turned around to see the voice of what was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, ties to the Ezekiel passage, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When was the last time you thought of God this way? Has there been a time when you were able to catch a sight of God that you recognized his holiness and the only thing you were left with was wanting to fall on the ground as though dead? You know what, I think if some of us were, able to, were to be able to catch a sight of God and to recognize his holiness, his otherness, his brilliance, I think we'd pray differently. I've heard a lot of students pray and talk to God as if they're talking to one of their roommates. God's not your roommate. He's not your buddy. He's not your peer, friends. I hear other people trying to talk about God as if, almost in, a, almost in a romantic way. I had a girl in college one time when I asked to dance, and she said, I'm dating God right now, right? God doesn't, God doesn't want to date you. He's not on the market. Okay? The way we worship would change. You know why so much... Uh, Worship now is entertainment-driven. Why we feel we need to amuse people to, ca- to catch their attention? Because we've lost the loftiness and the holiness of God. He should be enough, but he's not. So we've got to get lights and we've got to do stuff and we've got to try to capture your attention because you'll be falling asleep pretty soon. If we just saw the holiness of God, all of us would fall down on our faces. And those of you on your phones in chapel, every time we come, would cast your phones as far as the east is from the west, and you'd get out on your face and you would worship. Okay? And those of you not on your phones would too. Okay? 
I don't know what else to say. It's, it's hard for me to describe the undescribable. If, if you were listening to what I was reading, the language itself in Scripture here is strained. The inspired writer is trying to communicate what he's seeing, and he can't quite do it. Everything's an analogy. Something like sapphire, something like a rainbow on a stormy day, something like the brilliance of the sun. We can't get our minds around the holiness and the otherness and the beauty of God, and I wish we could. You know, it's one of those things that God has to break into us by his grace, and we've got to let him do it. I felt that I needed to say that. And you know, this is the Cox Holiness Lectures, and traditionally, we've been good at talking about our holiness and us being made pure and us being right with God and us being transformed, but we don't talk enough about God's holiness. We're nothing. Our holiness is nothing without first understanding God's holiness, okay? He is holy. Jesus fully reveals that. So let me quickly say this before I move on here. Um, How should we respond to this God who on the one hand is lofty and far above us, on the other hand, welcomes us into his presence? Um, There's an illustration I like to use that I think think helps me at least. Maybe it'll help you. I'm not sure. A few years ago, I was co-leading a study abroad group um, at the other college where I used to teach to, to Rome. Uh, and into Italy. And by the way, um, Dr. Schenk, if we want to start, STM wants to start a satellite campus in Rome, I'll, I'll go over there and start that. Um, how many of you have ever been to the Sistine Chapel before? Like one person? Okay, you guys, uh, several? Okay. One of, the, one of the most beautiful places ever. So you, I go to Rome, go to the Vatican, and you go to the Sistine Chapel and see some of the best artwork that exists on the face of the planet. The best of Renaissance art is right there. It's, it's amazing. It's spectacular. Michelangelo, Botticelli, all these, all these artists, and the, 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 the frescoes and the, 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 you know, the, the famous paintings that you might have seen in a textbook about God and creation, the judgment and everything else. So everyone's in there, and you're allowed to be in there for a while. You, you, like, it's, it's amazing. You have access to one of the most sacred spaces in the world. But you can't just do whatever you want. Lining the, the room are a bunch of guys in dark suits that I call shushers. I call them shushers because all they do is this. Right? Seriously. You're like, what's wrong with these guys when you first walk with them? Then you realize something, okay? They want you to be there. They want you to enjoy the art. They want you to, um, you know, take it all in, have a good time but they want you to remember that this is a holy and sacred space. It's not just some other tourist attraction. You don't, you don't go in there and be like, well, cool, look at that. I'm going to take a selfie with this, you know, and act like a moron, right? You're supposed to act like this is a sacred space. Enjoy it. Love it. But remember what it is. And I, I, think, I think the illustration there is to be God lovingly grants us access to himself, but, ac- but access does not equal irreverence. Access to God's presence does not mean we're casual or flippant with him. We treat him as the majesty that he is. Okay, one of the other things that we need to talk about here, about what Jesus fully reveals about God is his holiness and his love. When we talk about holiness and love, I don't want you to think about these as like two different moods in God, right? Like the holy part is God's standards, his ethics, right? Um, his, you know, his loftiness. And the love part is the more Santa Claus part of God, 
right? The grandfatherly part of God, like God has a holy standard, he can't abide sin, but he really, really loves us a lot, so God's kind of torn within himself. No, right? Like God, God does, God's not divided. God's love and God's holiness are really two sides of the same coin. God's otherness is his love. So when God calls us to be holy, he's not saying, you know, um, I'm going to make you physically luminous like I'm luminous when people see me, of course, right? Like no one's going to be blinded but because John Bray was made holy, right? But it's, the key is love. God's different from us in every way. But when he calls us to be like him, when he calls us to be holy, it's not about being lofty. It's about being loved like he is. God's love is from all eternity. From, from all eternity, God has always been the communion of self-giving love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He, again, he shares everything with us. He doesn't hold back what is his. He's not a miser. He gives generously of his love, of his life, of his benefits, and he welcomes us in. One of the things that I didn't read a few minutes ago when I was reading those passages where people have a God sighting and they, they fall down and they're terrified is that after they fall face down and are terrified, a voice speaks, or in John, Jesus, the glorified Son of God, who looked like eyes of flaming fire and a sword coming out of his mouth, and all of that came and put his hand on John and said, don't be afraid. It is I, the living one. That shows us that God, even though he's so far different from us and we're so unworthy of him, calls us into a special kind of relationship with himself. And it's because God is love. And he wants us to be love like he is love in character. God is different from the world. We're supposed to be different in the world. But here's the problem. We're not. God is holy. Jesus reveals God's holiness. Jesus reveals the very love of God, the very self-giving of God. The fact that God's love is not self-centered. God's love is unself-interested. He tell, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, God sends the sun on the just and the unjust and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Even though he knows a lot of people aren't going to return his love, he loves them anyway. And in that context, Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He didn't mean be eternal like your Father in heaven is eternal. He didn't mean be omnipotent and all-powerful like your Father in heaven is omnipotent. He says, have the same kind of unself-interested love as your Father has. Love sacrificially and love unconditionally just like your Father. And in that sense, you're holy like God is holy. The problem, of course, is that when we come into this world, we're not. We as Christians believe that naturally we're not good. Naturally we are sinful. Um, the Bible teaches us otherwise. In, in this passage, in, in verse 3, it says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. All right. So here we get to the other part. Right? Jesus fully reveals God. God is holy. God is love. And God calls us to be holy. God calls us into a special relationship with himself. God gives us access to himself. God wants to communicate with us. God wants to be in loving relationship with us. Um, But it took purification to make that happen. The very fact that Jesus made purification for sin and sat down implies several things. One, it does imply that we need it. 
When I was in school, I went to public school, I was taught that human beings are basically good. And most of the time, human beings will do the right thing. Yeah? I don't know if they'll always do the right thing behind closed doors, but we're taught, you know, given the fact that, so, yeah, some people need education, they need a boost, but given the right context, human beings are basically good and, and they'll do things all the time. And that, that, that comforts us, right? We think that we're really not so bad after all. And we're really good at justifying our actions. And we're good at rationalizing the things that we're into that we, pro- we know we probably shouldn't be into. But we think, yeah, but I'm basically good and I'm certainly better than that other guy over there. Right? We, 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 we love what uh, Lady Gaga sang some years ago. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. Right? Like, it, no matter how we are, we say that we're on the right track. This is, this is who I am and it's good. It's a good thing no matter what. The Bible teaches us you're on the wrong track, baby, you were born that way, right? Because we were all born in, because we were born in sin, okay? In other words, you and I were all born with an inner condition, an inner tendency to set our will against God's. We were born with a natural proclivity to want to do our own thing and not to do what God wants us to do. We have a bent towards sinning. It's as natural as breathing. I have children. I know, okay? If you've ever spent any time with children, you will see as much as they can be just so beautiful and cute and adorable and just make you want to cry sometimes how cute they are, they can, they can manifest just abject depravity in other moments, right? Over something as stupid as the toy shopping cart that we should not have gotten them for Christmas, right? You know, fighting over things and like just take, you would, you would think that the way that they scream at each other sometimes, like one that just stabbed one of the others, you're right? But they, they, they why, why, why do they do that? Because naturally they're selfish. Yeah, I love my kids, they're cute, they're adorable, but they have a nature that is twisted. We all do when we're born into the world. No one ever sat you down, your parents, unless they were really horrible parents, never sat you down and like taught you how to tell a lie, right? Do you remember your first slide? Did anyone have to teach you how to do that? No one ever had to teach you how to be jealous. You just were. I thought that was Lewis over there. Amen. Yeah. No one has to teach you. No one has to teach you how to be lustful. No one had to teach you how to throw a temper. Did, did your parents ever say, now, Johnny, Susie, whoever, here's how you get on the ground and throw a tantrum and you don't get your way. Okay? Here's how you scream your head off when the toy is taken from you. No! Those things come naturally. And they're far away from the character of God. So the fact that Jesus, it says, made purification for sins and sat down implies that we need purification. We need God to do something about that condition. And all the baggage that we've racked up, all the things that we've done because of that condition. It also assumes that there's no substitute for this. right? The fact that the Son, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, who came down incarnate, died, made purification, and then sat down at the right hand of the Father, assumes that there's, there, there's nothing else that will suffice like his blood. Okay? We can be sometimes very good at trying to reform ourselves, putting in good habits, right? trying to correct behaviors, trying to rid ourselves of addictions. And sometimes we can make small improvements. But as much as we try to reform ourselves, we can never transform ourselves. We can't change ourselves. I can't make myself unselfish by sheer will. I can't put habits in place that will erase the hostility in my heart toward another person. I can't keep from 
having an angry, bitter heart toward the person that offended me simply by willing it. I'm glad we have things like accountability and small groups to to help us. I'm I'm glad that we have um, programs that um, emphasize um, getting along better, courageous conversations, those kinds of things, loving each other like we should. But you guys, those aren't any substitutes for the purifying work that Christ has to do in our hearts. Those come later. They can substitute. You, you, you can't workshop your way out of a hostility in your heart. Jesus has to come and cleanse you. We need it, and there's no substitute for it. Something else that implies purification. Notice that word, purification. Okay? Purification isn't then simply a covering over our sins. It's a cleansing of the sins. There's a real difference between covering over something and cleansing it. Okay? When I wash my clothes, I, I don't want the detergent to just cover over my dirt. I want it to cleanse the dirt. Okay? Some of you who have had me in class have heard me use this analogy before, attributed to Martin Luther. He said that salvation is in, in Christ is kind of like being a snow-covered dung heap. Okay? You like that imagery? We're in Indiana, there's farms, and we have snow. Just the other day it snowed. Um, the idea here is that when the Father sees us, he doesn't see our nasty stinkiness. He sees Christ covering us over, right? So he counts us as if we were pure like Christ is pure, just like beautiful snow covers a pile of dung. But the idea of purification implies that we're not dung anymore. By the time God gets through with us, he doesn't just merely cover us over. He cleanses us. And let me tell you something else. When he, when he cleanses us, he, not, he, he cleanses not just what we've done, right? But he cleanses and breaks the power and the guilt of sin. Have you ever either done something one time or done a series of things and just felt like you needed to like, take a shower on the inside? You know? The purifying blood of Christ is able to cleanse the guilt of sin. But it's also able to cleanse us from the power of sin. Sin is powerful. It's more powerful than us. We can't wield it. We can't control it. It controls us apart from the saving grace of God and the purifying blood that makes our sins earlier, as far as the east is from the west, cast them from us, cleanses us completely. Guys, I want you to know something. This is, and this is where I'll close. The fact that Jesus made purification and sat down, sat down at the right hand means that his purification is enough. We don't need anything else. We can't have anything else. I want you to know today, and I don't know where you're all at spiritually. Some of you, I think, are walking with the Lord, doing fine. Others, probably not, somewhere in between. Some of you perhaps want to follow God. Maybe you, you're trying, but you have certain addictions, cravings in your life, things that you're trying to cover up, things that you haven't let go of. Whatever the case may be, I want you to know that there is no sin that is so deeply entrenched, so sinister, so toxic, and so dark that the blood of Christ can't cleanse and free you from. That's the gospel, friends. The idea, the idea that we are naturally depraved and sinful is biblical, but so is the fact that Christ can come and cleanse us to the very core of our being. I didn't read it because I'm almost out of time, but Hebrews not, well, I will anyway. I have three minutes. <laughs> Let me quickly read this for you. Hebrews, 
So much of this entire book, again, is about the blood of Christ and the difference between the blood of Christ and the blood of bulls and goats. Let me read two verses from chapter 9, 13 through 14. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. Talking about the old rituals under the Jewish law. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? That word conscience means our inner selves, the very core of who we are. The blood of Christ reaches further and deeper than the stain of sin ever could. And I want you to know that this morning. If you've not heard anything else I've said, if you've fallen asleep or whatever else, and now you're awake, this is what I want you to to take with you. The blood of Christ can purify us of any stain. This is the way in which God makes us holy. Let me pray. Lord, we're thankful that your blood can make us clean. And Lord, you alone know the secret chambers of the heart in each person here. And I pray, Lord God, that wherever there may be sins carried along, maybe anything that's hidden, something that people are ashamed of who sit here, God, that they would recognize that there is freedom in you, Jesus. That there's nothing so deadly that can separate us from you. You are able to cleanse and to purify Help us to believe on you to do that. We thank you for your love. We're thankful that you are holy. We thank you that you can fully redeem us. In Jesus' name, amen.